1: Good afternoon and welcome. This is Michelle Gawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. It's always great to be with you. For our regular listeners, you know I come to you regularly on Thursdays from 3 to 4, joining the Leslie Marshall family. And listen, I'd love to hear from you. So go ahead, give us a call at 888 6 Leslie. That's 888 888- six five three seven five four three. And if you want to follow the conversation online, feel free to follow us at Michelle at M I C H E L E Jawando J A W A N D O or at Leslie Marshall you can find us both on Twitter so it is a beautiful Thursday June 16th a lot to talk about in the media and in the press today none other than Oprah Winfrey herself endorsed Hillary Clinton to be the next President of the United States so I know there's been a lot of action on Twitter today we are still mourning the tragic incident that happened in Orlando that's affecting people from all over the country Um, and none other than the Senate Democrats yesterday staging a 15 hour filibuster to honor the victims of not just Orlando, but I would like to believe the victims in Ferguson, the victims who have been subject to uh, gun violence in their communities on Memorial Day, 70 people dying of gun violence in Chicago. Um, This is an epidemic, people, and I'm hoping that the tragic incident forces people to start thinking about Solutions. Right now, we're hearing about two most often, the terror gap, as well as background checks. But I'm hoping as we continue to move forward, we'll hear more holistic um, responses to definitely what was one of the uh, most grave tragedies to ever touch our nation. But today, I'm excited about our next guest who is joining the show. Um, I have the honor and privilege to hear from her most recently at the Know Your Truths conference, and many of you know uh, Melissa Harris-Perry, who was a former MSNBC television host, academic thinker, stakeholder, um, is now editor-in-large at Elle magazine, pulled together some great thinkers from all over the country, um, and being there gave me an opportunity to meet sisters who I was either familiar with their work, wasn't as familiar, um, but it was really a wonderful event because we centered a conversation around black women and girls. Um, And I tell you, that doesn't happen that often. And so to kind of be in the room for two days where we really focused on that was amazing. Uh, Following up with that, this week was the United States the United State of Women Conference, which was 5,000 of my sisters from all over the country. And the sister joining us on this conversation now, Monique Morris, was there for both. Uh, Monique Morris is the co-founder of the National Black Women Justice Institute. She is the author of a number of books, which we will get to talking about quite um, soon. But Monique,
2: thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on.
1: So appreciated. And if you want to stay in touch with Monique on Twitter, you can also follow. Her handle is at Monique W. Morris. M-O-R-R-I-S Monique M-O-N-I-Q-U-E W-Morris M-O-R-R-I-S So Monique Thank you and welcome to the show This has been a, a huge week I think for women um, It was such a powerful um, day And I'm sure you probably shall Share that same feeling Of seeing the first lady And yeah. the A.G. and <laughs> Oprah I mean just what were your feelings I know I was on a high Even though it was a yeah. long day You know I
2: was there with my daughters <laughs> I had the opportunity to bring my daughters with me. And so on a personal note, um, I felt that it was really important for them to observe this community, this growing community, but certainly this, this outstanding community of
0: women
2: um, who have centered their well-being in their policy work, in their advocacy, in their discussions with each other. And so it was very powerful to have an opportunity to explore the issues that continue to undermine equal access to opportunity, the economic discussions, health and well-being, Uh, sexual violence, you know, certainly launched the conversation. And so I think it was a very powerful way for us to both discuss the issues that continue to plague us around gender equity issues, but also the opportunity to begin conversations about solutions I found particularly powerful.
1: Even the phrasing, um, for those who didn't have an opportunity to join, the White House has many of the sessions in the plenary sessions online at WhiteHouse.gov of but we went into what were called solution sessions as opposed to seminars uh the conversation started with um what were you going to the conference for who were you standing for and i think even sometimes just changing the narrative about why we're gathering makes a difference and in some ways makes it more action-oriented
2: no question. I had the privilege of being able to moderate one of the solution sessions, uh, that was centered on girls who have been marginalized by various systems. And so I think it provided us, you know, with an opportunity to explore the intersections and to spend a little time in the margins <laughs> and mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. to really begin to think through how we're going to come together as a community to address uh... girls and women it was the united States of women but there was absolutely a space for us to engage in questioning around how we're going to facilitate womanhood by examining what's happening with girlhood <laughs> within girlhood and so i was very happy to be a part of that discussion and i think uh, and ho- i'm very hopeful that those discussions both in terms of sharing uh... each other's narratives, but also in terms of building connections to advance our work Uh, organizationally and structurally together, will continue in communities.
1: Well, that kind of is, in some ways, an absolutely perfect segue for us to start this discussion about your book, one that I devoured from beginning to end, and I hope many others will, uh, push out the criminalization of black girls in schools. Um, I was familiar with Monique's work because of my um, constant referral to black stats, which is for those who are researchers, it is hard to find information about your people. But um, let me just tell you what Gloria Steinem has said about uh, push out. If you have ever doubted that supremacy crimes, those devoted to maintaining hierarchy, are rooted in both sex and race, read Push Out. Monique Morris tells us exactly how schools are crushing the spirit and talent that this country needs. Monique, tell us a little bit about the book.
2: Um, I'll pick up from what I think uh, Gloria Steinem was picking up on in the book, (laughs) and, you know, Push Out is a discussion about the ways in which our educational systems uh, reinforce a social structure that serves to punish and criminalize and unfairly respond to the behaviors, actions, and identity of black girls and young women. And so I talk about schools as structures of dominance; those institutions that can either uh, maintain a status quo, or that can, uh, you know, serve to provide ample opportunity and critical thinking and, and other tools to disrupt structures of oppression. Um, pushout is a centering of the narratives of girls who have experienced school pushout. We've come to talk about this phenomenon that was once uh, described as dropout. Um, in the form of push-out, as an intentional way to call attention to the policies, practices, and the prevailing consciousness that facilitate a, a response to student behavior that later renders them vulnerable to contact with the criminal and juvenile legal system. So in push-out, I talk about girls, and I talk with girls, and I share girls' narratives, black girls' narratives about how their identities have, mi- have been misconstructed, Misconstrued, mm-hmm. and how they have uh, ex- engaged in problematic uh, experiences, conditions, and behaviors in schools and out that have facilitated their contact with the juvenile and criminal legal systems. So, um, I'm hoping, you know, that in in our discussions about this, we'll be able to, un- you know, to uplift a couple of other uh, themes that emerge in the book that talk about school and locate the conversation in school, but also talk about the ways in which our community uh, functions to, um, reinforce ideas that then become a part of the dominant school culture. So it's really also about the relationships between community and school, not Mm -hmm. only about the Mm decision-making that occurs in school. Mm -hmm.
1: So if you're just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show with my guest for the uh, next 30 minutes, Monique Morris, who's the co-founder of the National Black Women Justice Institute. When we return, we're going to pick up the conversation on Push Out, and I hope you give us a call. We'll be right back after the break
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall show. 8886 Leslie
1: Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. I hope you'll give us a call, and you can do that by doing 888-6 Leslie on your phone. That's 888-653-7543. Joining me again on the line is none other than Monique Morris, who's the co-founder of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, and she's also the author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Monique, thanks again for joining us on the show today. Of
2: course. Happy so, to be
1: here. So one of the things that I found that was just so fascinating, and and it, it should not be this revolutionary, but you actually talk to girls instead of about girls, and particularly black girls and Latinas, yeah. Um That is a conversation that's not happening about their experiences, particularly in school. How troubling was it for you to kind of even just start that conversation and hear how silenced they were in some respects?
2: You know, it's very troubling. Unfortunately, it wasn't new information to me. I have spent uh, several years as a researcher in the space around juvenile justice and education and so was aware that... Um, There are many methods that adults use to collect information that often do not involve going straight to the source to uplift their stories and their narratives as a part of understanding um, the issue, but also constructing the responses to those issues. And I wanted to do something differently. With this, um, Much of my own research is anchored in what's known as participatory action research. And so I use those methods to go in and engage girls who had experienced this phenomenon to help us understand how it uniquely impacts them as black girls and what they feel should be a part of the solution around these issues. <sighs>
1: You know, one of the things that you you talk about is this kind of infamous black girl attitude.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And for our listeners who may not be as familiar, um, talk to us about what that is, um, about how even educators um, have an opportunity to de-escalate a classroom situation when a young black woman speaks her mind Mm -hmm. in a manner that they may deem inappropriate. But, you know, why don't you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Um so I Talk about that in a lot in the chapter called "A Blues for Black Girls" uh, when the attitude is enough.
0: <laughs> attitude always a quote
2: for me, um, both in terms of how I uh, address this issue, but also in terms of how I've come to define it. So mm-hmm. the the thing to know, I would say, about my approach to all of this is to understand that for me, the attitude is an open inquiry, which means that we don't really know what it is. We're still exploring what it is, and what it is is shaped by our own. Um, uh, sort of consciousness, public consciousness, that's been informed by a series of latent ideas about black feminine identity, um, as being hypersexual, conniving, loud, sassy, etc. Um And even, you know, when I pose the question to people, what is the attitude, um, you know, people tend to move into stereotypical responses that... Um, really do challenge our ability to see black girls as whole people Mm. and to recognize that in many ways their responses are not uh, an affront to authority but rather an expression of their own critical thinking in the face of internalized oppression and other forms of oppression that impact their lives so when in schools when we have uh, structures of discipline that are primarily about punishment and responding to children or modifying behaviors without considering other conditions, what we're doing is falling right in line with a social structure and a, a way of responding to black femininity in a way that uh, is harsh and um, over. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I talk about the legacy of slavery and segregated opportunity as socializing punishment and discipline as an appropriate way to respond to black girls who rebel against normative ideas about what is proper feminine behavior. Right. right. And so when we talk about this in the context of schools, what happens is that many administrators, teachers, often well-meaning, are responding to the behaviors and, and reactions of black girls in ways that do... Um, little to understand who they are as whole people, but only really responding to what they have said.
1: So, for example, I talk
2: about an administrator who was telling me about his own experiences with girls, black girls in particular, who get referred to him for disciplinary cases or or, you know, when he receives a disciplinary referral. And he said, you know, that he gets referrals for what he called the simplest reasons. And then he says, you know, for a girl yelling, I don't understand, or a teacher saying, did you come to school to learn? And then the child responding did you come to school to teach and his way of responding to that was you know our babies can be snappy um you know and then he says overall the sisters bring a lot of attention to themselves because they're not docile so that, to me, you know, strikes, I think, at the core of how we have come to construct our own uh, understanding of what an attitude is.
1: Yeah. Among yeah.
2: Girls, it strikes me as the way that yeah. we respond to it when it's black girls.
1: Right. Right. It's almost as if you need a different cultural competency as educators to educate black girls
2: very least need to have a recognition that when they're responding, they're responding to a condition of oppression or something that they deem to be unjust,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs>
2: not necessarily mm-hmm. that they believe that um, it is their uh, ability and right to engage in, in you know, some sort of confrontational or defiant uh, space. With you. <laughs> so,
0: right, right, right.
2: So it's how we've come to understand even tone. So many times when I'm talking to educators, when I'm talking to other adults, they'll comment on the tone black girls have or mm-hmm. the volume with which they speak, mm-hmm. as opposed to really understanding or taking the time to understand how to read those behaviors, how to understand and deconstruct, both in a historical context, but also in the context of their own uh, location in space and their own understanding of their location. Um, and, on how they need to behave in order to be seen, in order to be received. You know, and st- instead of asking why is volume so important, we're asking how can we shut them up and right. solve the problem.
1: And, you know, as we, and unfortunately, I can't believe how quickly we got to 30 minutes already, um, when someone picks up their book, what do you want them walking away from? What is what is the definitive lesson that you want people to get from push out?
2: Yeah, I want people to understand that black girls uh, should be received as sacred and love. I want them to understand the centrality of trauma and victimization in mm-hmm. the lives of girls who are most at risk of school push-out. And rather than dismissing them as bad girls or throwing kids away, I think it's time for us to explore new ways of engaging with children to maintain their status as scholars and students in our spaces of learning. The one thing that I'm hopeful that folks will understand at the end of this is that education is a critical, protective Factor against contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system, and so we should be doing everything we can to keep them in schools rather than finding new ways to push them out.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Monique Morris, author of Push Out the Criminalization of Black Girls in School and co founder of the National Black Women's Institute, it's been an honor to have you. We'll have to have you back. Please stick with us. This is Michelle Jawanda on the Leslie Marshall Show, and we're with Don Cravens from the National Urban League. After the break, thanks again, Mooney. Good
2: afternoon,
1: and welcome back listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show always great to be with you and we have absolutely the best audience on radio and I love to hear from you so give us a call at 888 6 Leslie. that's 888-653-7543 if you want to follow along the conversation you can find us on Twitter at Michelle Jawando or at Leslie Marshall so I am happy to have in studio uh, my friend and colleague Donald Cravens, who's the senior vice president of policy at the National Urban League of Washington. But that does not describe his many accomplishments. Um, Don is a former chief of staff, at one time the only African-American chief of staff to a member of the United States Senate, to Senator Mary Landrieu of Louisiana. But prior to coming to Washington, he himself was an elected official. So we basically can talk to Don about everything. (laughs) Uh, He was a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives at the same time his father served in the Louisiana State Senate, the only father and son in Louisiana history to serve at the same time. And in addition, he is married to an absolutely dope wife who is changing the world in her own right. Donald Cravens, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much, Michelle. It's an honor to be here. I am one of your biggest fans, and I tell you that all the time (laughs) I see you and your husband. Uh, You two are, are one. One of our power couples here and uh do great work and I know that you guys, your hearts, both of you, are in the right place and you're doing everything you can to make our country a better place. And so thank you for letting me be on the program. Thank today.
1: you. And we so appreciate you taking the time. Um, great company today. Let's just say that. So, you know, Don, you have a lot of different hats, but one of the reasons that I wanted to definitely get you in studio is about a week ago, uh, your organization, the National Urban League um, published what has become an annual rites of passage here in Washington, D.C. Um, the state of the black community, so to speak, and the Urban League kind of puts out a report every year with a different focus. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this year's report?
3: Sure. Well, Michelle, let me say this, because so, I run into a lot of people who say, tell me again about the Urban League. Right, okay? right, right. So just just very quickly, the Urban League was founded in 1910. When african America, after slavery, mm-hmm. African-Americans in the Deep South found themselves not much better off than they had been as slaves. They found a Jim Crow South that was very segregated. And so many African-Americans moved northward and 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 did so thinking they were going to find the land of milk and honey right so they move up north and everything is going to be better and when they got there they realized they still were having significant issues in in four major areas one finding a good job mm-hmm. two finding a good place to live with their families Three education, they were still seeing a very segregated uh, e- e- educational system, um, and four healthcare. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't finding they weren't in, living in the best health um, had the best health, healthy conditions. And so the Urban League has continued to work on those issues, in addition to civil traditional civil rights issues. But that's always been our core beliefs and and, and our core areas of focus. In, in the 1970s, the State of Black America uh, became a publication put out yearly by the Urban League. Then our president and CEO was Mr. Vernon Jordan. Hmm. And, and Mr. Jordan said, you know what, every year we need to a take a snapshot of where African-Americans are. We want to look as compared to our white brothers and sisters, where are we in some of those major areas. And so this year was our 40th edition wow. of the State of Black America. In addition to those the, those original ideas that Mr. Jordan had, we've also expanded it to include his Hispanic numbers as well, and this year we, we, we put numbers in showing the unemployment numbers that many African Americans are facing in urban America. We hear a lot about job numbers. Mm-hmm. We hear mm-hmm. a lot about unemployment numbers. I saw even last week uh, we, we were happy to see that As a whole, African-American job numbers were the lowest they had been uh, in many, many years, and and, and that's in large part due to the hard work of the president and his administration and and some members of Congress who have been supportive. But when you look at the jobless numbers in urban America, especially among African-American men. We still see that some of those here in washington d c almost eleven percent unemployment in african America in baltimore twelve uh, percent compared to four and four and five percent uh, with our white uh, brothers and sisters and so when you look at those numbers. There's still a the recession is not over in right, many urban for so areas. Many communities. That's correct. Well,
1: one of the things that I so appreciate about your work, we often have a conversation about the middle class in this country, <clears throat> which is so needed, but what we don't talk about is often the working poor. And yes. I I always lead with the working poor because what most people don't recognize is that most of the people who are living in poverty are actually working. We still have these myths about who they are, and we don't always center our conversations around urban communities and urban areas Um, and it's one of the things that i appreciate about your work so you know you you talked a little bit about the employment numbers but one of the other huge planks of your work is obviously voting rights um our listeners are very attuned to this 2016 election um What have you uncovered in this latest report or what are some of the things that you guys are doing at the Urban League as we head into the 2016 election?
3: Well, the the state of black America also looks at social activism and we see Mm -hmm. that numbers, particularly among African-Americans and Latinos, our social activism is up. We're very engaged Mm -hmm. uh, in what's going on. What I hope the listeners are paying attention to, and this is an issue that we talk a lot about here in the Beltway because a lot of our friends Uh, in the movement are engaged in these issues, I don't know that these issues are getting attention back at home, is that in 2013, in 2013, the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. um, declared parts of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Parts of the Voting Rights Act that required states and counties, uh, before they changed uh, voting locations, before they changed times to vote, uh, they they used to have to get preclearance from the Justice Department to do that. Well, now Mm -hmm. states can do it and just do it when they want to do it. And so what does that mean for us in this election? Well, 21 states have already enacted voter suppression uh, restrictions on people. We saw it in Arizona during the primary. Mm -hmm. Many Hispanic and African-American voters stood in lines for hours and hours to to cast their vote for the presidential primary. Why was that? That didn't happen five years ago. It happened after the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. And so what you've seen is that in those states, departments of motor vehicles have been shut down. So Mm -hmm. the state will enact a new voter ID law, right? Before you can vote, you've got to get a new ID. Oh, and by the way, we're going to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicle. Alabama. We're talking about you. Absolutely. (laughs) We'll shut down the Department of Motor Vehicle in your state. And you might have to drive to three counties over to get Mm -hmm. that.
1: Over 100 miles, Ohio, North Carolina. We're talking about you.
3: Absolutely. And that is happening all across America in Mm -hmm. this very important presidential, but also equally, and I dare say even more important, Congressional election that's going on, that's right? right? The United States Senate uh, is only there's 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 only a difference of four senators on the de- Democratic side, and so that that body itself could flip back into the hands of the Democrats. Why is that important? One. Uh, we don't. We, we have a Supreme Court justice mm-hmm. uh, vacancy that we mm-hmm. would like to see filled. Uh, Two, the voting rights that right.
1: constitutionally should be filled.
3: Absolutely, that's right. Um, the <laughs> Voting Rights Act. If we're ever going to restore the protections of the Voting Rights Act, Congress mm-hmm. has to do that. Well, right now we can't get the Congress to act on that, mm-hmm. which is in my in my opinion un-American. Mm-hmm. That we would be going into a presidential election and not make sure that people had access to the ballots. And so that is an issue we are trying to bring more and more attention to because we can do all the other things right, but if people, men and women, can't cast their ballots right. and know that the system is, is fair. but right, We always say, made the best person win.
1: Right. But, well, but fair, not right. everybody has the same <laughs> playing field Absolutely. to start
3: from the beginning. And so we've been spending a lot of time on that as well. So we are going
1: to get ready to go to a break here in a second, but one of the things that I would love for you to talk about when we come back after the break um, is your experience one, being the only African American chief in the United States Senate It Um, Your work now, as you talk about these issues, the Urban League has a number of um, initiatives, particularly in the different tech sectors and how we change and make diversity real. How do we kind of get to the point where we're not the only one, uh, where that's just not the novel idea anymore? And how do we push our country further there? You're listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show in studio with Donald Cravens, Senior VP of Policy at the National Urban Urban League and we will be right back after the break.
0: You're listening to the Leslie Marshall show, Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 8886 Leslie.
1: Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Give us a call. Join in the conversation at 888-6 Leslie. That's 888-653-7543. And I'm back in studio with Donald Cravens, who's the Senior Vice President of Policy at the National Urban League of Washington. And we're having a great conversation in studio about the state of Black America, the annual report that that the National Urban League puts out. Um, but I know we have a friend on the line, Dave from California. How are you? And welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show.
0: Great show, Michelle. And I'll, uh, I. Uh, we just witnessed another election, which I find to be frightening, what uh, I just saw again. And that is that uh, the interests of corporate greed, Wall Street America, is not always the same interest. As that of struggling minorities and students and those that are really working hard to meet their basic needs. Mm-hmm. And so we watch how they handle these elections. One group gets to stand in line five, six, seven, eight hours to vote. The other group just walks up and gets it and it's over with. Mm-hmm. And also there is those who control the electronics that are able to rearrange the votes. In the event that you didn't vote the way they wanted. And so I think that's what I'd like to get you there. I think it's so important. We've got other issues. But if those issues were forgotten for a moment, what just happened to us in the elections, big time, something that we need to stand up to.
1: Well, Dave, I so appreciate your question Um, and comment. I mean, what I think people may have neglected as we think about California, Dave, um, for those who aren't familiar, was calling in from California. They just had their primaries um, and. There were a number of ballots that people had concerns were not being counted accurately. You had long waits depending on different kind of districts. And I think he, he points to a bigger issue that I think a lot of people don't recognize. Your experience at the polls are so varied depending on mm-hmm. load, voting location to voting location. And that has a disproportionate impact on what we know are communities of color, on students, on the elderly. Um, and what I have told people is, voting is a is a civic duty and responsibility. But if your first experience with the polls is a five hour, a two hour wait to do something that should take ten minutes max. You might not want to come back. We haven't created an environment for you to come back. And, Don, I know you spoke about that a little yeah. bit, but I'd also love for you to talk about it from the perspective as a former elected official, because that means that people who wanted to support you may not have always had the same access.
3: Right. No, look, I hear the frustration in Dave's voice. And, Dave, I share that frustration with you. And and look, Michelle, you you, you talked about it. The solution, though, because we could talk about the issues, and you're right—it's the standing in line. It's the and some of this is, is calculated, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's done that mm-hmm. way so people, poor people, and and unrepresented people, disrepresented, and disproportionately underrepresented, won't vote. The solution, though, is not um, to 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 stop voting. That's right. And so, as frustrating as it is, and even as counterintuitive as it may seem, well, I had to stand in line for so long. I'm just not going to do it again. That is absolutely not the, the, the solution. The solution mm-hmm. is to go and vote and vote. And Michelle, you said something. It is a duty, a civic duty to vote. But I want uh, Americans to understand a democracy. Voting is just one piece of that democracy.
1: That's right. right? That's right.
3: And so, at Dave, it's also um, if you didn't like the way things happen, let's not wait until the next election to voice the complaint. And, and I'm sure he's not. But you got to get other people to start voicing the complaints today for the mm-hmm. next election, which mm-hmm. may be four years from now. But democracy is being engaged. It's talking to your state rep, it's mm-hmm. talking to your city council person, it's talking to your school board member, it's attending meetings, it's calling them when they don't do the right thing. It's writing emails, writing letters. The voting I, I like to say, voting is almost the is, is, is almost the floor of democracy. That's, That's just right. one thing you can do. Mm-hmm. There's so many other things that you have to do in order to get through this frustration. I'll say this, Michelle there are a lot of us who felt powerless leading up to the 2008 election mm. thought big money would 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 prevail again and if there's anything that the election of president obama showed us and you see it every once in a while in, in local races if people stand together and 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 little people stand together and put mm-hmm. a couple of dollars here together and 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 mm-hmm. and, and believe in a candidate you you can change some things right Mm -hmm. and so i still have very much i have hope that when people stand together and they get together and they organize and they strategize um they can make a difference julian bond passed away um I guess late last year yeah yeah um, one of the things he says was, Julian Bond for those who may
1: not be as familiar was the former chair of the NAACP he was a state representative in Georgia and one of the leaders of the civil rights movement
3: Julian you know was a big part of eyes on the prize the, mm-hmm. the, the, the documentary that really talks about the civil rights movement when he was asked his opinion about it and he bragged about it. he said if there was one thing he could change he says, Eyes on the Prize does a great job of highlighting the protest and the public things, the press conferences. Mm-hmm. It didn't take it didn't get behind the scenes though to show the hours and hours and hours right. that we strategized and we communicated and we cried and we fought behind the scenes on how do we do this and so I would just tell Dave and all of the listeners who are listening you, you, you can't let the big money scare you off mm-hmm. we got to get together we got to strategize and, and, and we can we can overcome that big money deficit all the time so 2016
1: you know I could not let you leave without commenting on um, you know in some ways, I tell people this election, you have an opportunity to have two of the starkest differences between the future and the country that you've ever had. Um, in some ways, um, you also see for the first time two interesting stats. One, millennials, which are defined as people 35 and under, it's the first time their numbers are the same as baby boomers, um, who were classified as those um, 45 to 60. And so kind of those two communities, for the first time, their numbers have matched in terms of their voting eligibility. So we're going to see that. You see two really different visions of what our country in America looks like, Um, and we've had a year of great tumult uh black lives matter the immigration dreamers movement um we're waiting any day now from two major decisions coming out from the supreme court one on affirmative action one on immigration um and that's just two of the many that remain kind of where are we as a country right now and what is the role that you're taking both personally and then with the work at national urban league
3: moving forward so Don's personal opinion on where we are as a country <laughs> is I think that we are at a crossroads, and I think you saw that in both, uh, on, in both political parties in both elections. I think the fact that Senator Sanders was able to um, strike a chord with so many – young people, so many people who felt that, they, that this was an, a, a movement needed to take place to talk about some of those issues. That was an important movement in the Democratic Party that I think is going to make the Democratic Party a stronger party because mm-hmm. of that movement. On the Republican side, Michelle, if you would have told me <laughs> that jeb bush was not going to be at the beginning of this race right yeah. he had a hundred million dollars that jeb bush an establishment candidate although right. he you know he, he was having to dis- differentiate himself from his brother his father had served honorably um he had been a, a successful governor of florida had a hundred million dollars if you would have told me that on the republican side we had donald trump would actually be the nominee i, I just would have said come on you mm-hmm. know right so So you saw a change there too Or or something is happening there too We are definitely at a crossroads in this country And so I, I, I've stopped even making predictions this year. Uh, maybe maybe I don't know what I'm talking about in politics anymore, because I never could have predicted um, some of the success that I saw with Senator Sanders, just someone who had been a, a, you know an independent senator uh, mm-hmm. from Vermont, who worked hard in the Senate, but never yeah. thought he was a presidential candidate to be. I, you and, and I both. Right? I, and, was... and, and, and came very, very close. <laughs> never thought I'd see Donald Trump right, have such a serious right. candidate that he would have become the presumptive nominee even before Hillary Clinton. That's right. Was the presum- never could have Predicted those That's things. Right. One thing I will tell you, we're working on the Urban League is because we're nonpartisan and we don't take sides. We want to be influential with whomever is in control of government, whether it be the Republicans or the Democrats, because we think our issues are not racial, are not are not racial, and they're not political. We Mm -hmm. want to see stronger urban communities because a stronger urban community is a stronger America. That's right. What we are telling people, though, is you got to go vote. It goes back to what Dave said. Mm -hmm. We are letting African-Americans and people of color know how important their vote is. I hear all the time people say, well, does my vote even matter? I hear African-Americans say or ask, does the African-American vote even matter? And one of the things I want to clear, I want to say, Michelle, and I've been spreading this word. If you look at the 2008 and the 2012 elections, African-American women, Right. Outvoted every other group in America, and, and, and when I even say that to African American women, they don't. They believe don't know. That. They don't know. African, and I'll repeat it: African American <laughs> women outvoted every other group, male, female. They outvoted white men. They outvoted white women. They outvoted African American men in both elections. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, when other demographics went down in voting, less white men voted, less white women voted, less white black men voted. Their numbers went up. Black women went up. Why does that matter? Because in swing states like Ohio, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, Florida, that that, those votes made the difference for President Obama. Had he lost those swing states, he would not have beat Mitt Romney. And so when people think, well, do my votes make a difference? They absolutely do make a difference. And so that's what we're trying to the word we're trying to spread at the Urban League. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald
1: Craven, Senior Vice President at the National Urban League. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. It's always great to be with you. Stay tuned for next week. I'll have more great guests, great information to keep this country moving forward. Thanks and have a great day.